Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode of The Art of Customer Service brought to you by Digital Compact. My name is Eric Pfannmüller. I'm your host on this show, a former canoeing world champion, father of three, and founder of Soldmate, a leading platform for automating customer service with chatbots. As you know, on The Art of Customer Service, I talk with experts on what makes good customer service, which tools and practices are relevant, which new technologies are available in the customer service area, and many other exciting topics around a great service experience. Today's episode on The Art of Customer Service is about innovation in customer experience. Today with me on the show, I'm having... Nicola Millard, Principal Innovation Partner at BT British Telecom. She has worked for more than 30 years in customer experience, has a PhD in computer science with a focus on psychology. She's a book author on motivational user interfaces and in 2019, she was listed one of the top 10 CX influencers by the Customer Experience magazine in the UK. So in this podcast, we will talk about the relationship between customers, technology and contact center agents and how customer experience has changed over time and what topics might have remained constant. So stay tuned and learn more about innovation and customer experience. It's great to have you on the show today, Nicola. Welcome. Good to be here, Eric. How are you? I am fine, thanks. Maybe let's start with a quick introduction of yourself because you have a lot of experience in British Telecom. You've fulfilled various roles and probably seen a lot of things change in the past. So why don't you give us an overview of your past career at British Telecom? Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a, Just that's like a, a quick summary question. of the steps you've gone through. <laughs> As opposed to a blow-by-blow account, which could take a while. No, I, I joined BT back in 1990. Obviously, I was only six at the time, but BT was recruiting a lot of social scientists at that point. So um, my, my first degree was in applied psychology and computing. So I've always been interested in both people and technology and the intersection between the two of them. So I was recruited into what was then, I think, the largest human factors division in any sort of corporate in Europe. So uh, there were a lot of us, a weird and eclectic bunch of psychologists, sociologists, ergonomists, lots of ologies, basically, but all around sort of that, that relationship between people and technology. And I, my first job, actually, well, I had a few interesting first jobs. One of the first job I had was to look at applications of AI and contact centers. And of course, the 1990s were the first wave of excitement around AI. You said back in the 90s, you were looking into the AI and contact centers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we, I, uh, now I'm we, interested. <laughs> <laughs> they were called, of course, expert systems at that point, because uh, there was a little bit of machine learning and, and logic behind them. But largely, it was a very big knowledge base. Um, we had a, a natural language interface between the, the knowledge base and the agent. But what we were trying to do there, well, that's the first time I worked with contact centers, was actually do something that would help the agent diagnose quite complex network faults. So I mean, what we tended to do was we either had to, to recruit agents that were really skilled from a technical level that maybe weren't so skilled on the people level. Well, we recruited agents that were great people people, but didn't really understand the technology bit. So what we wanted to do, because of the emphasis on the people bit, we wanted to recruit people that were good people people, but actually boost up their, their skills and their knowledge using the AI. So we trialed that back in the 1990s. To a certain extent, it succeeded. There were largely issues, but some of which we still see today around the volatility of the data it used. But I would say, you know, it kind of proved that it was possible, but it was very expensive, tended to fall down whenever one bit of data got changed on what was quite a volatile database. So that was one of my first projects. The other one which is relevant today is I was also involved with our first experiments with homeworking. 1992 that was and again it was working with contact centre advisors. What we did was a proper experiment. So we did something, it was called the Inverness experiment because oddly enough 
it was an experiment and we did it in Inverness, but we actually got volunteers who uh, wanted to, to try working from home for a year to do that. And I was part of the team, a very small part of the team that was looking at some of the psychological implications of that because nobody had really worked from home for a whole year before. And we weren't entirely sure how they were going to respond. And actually they responded very well, to be honest. Employee experience went up, customer experience went up, but again, horribly expensive because we didn't have 4G, 5G, Wi-Fi, broadband, all of that lovely stuff. Then we had to literally dig people's front gardens up in order to get two ISDN pipes into their house. And of course, you know, that cost quite a lot of money. It proved it was possible, but it was incredibly expensive. So I started there doing lots of fabulous stuff there. And then contact centers became, if you like, the ideal fusion between people and technology. So you've got customers coming in, battling often technologies to get through to human agents who are also, you know, trying to engage with technologies as well to solve problems on the customer's behalf. So it it's just a completely fascinating area. And then, of course, BT was very kind and sponsored my PhD, which was looking at how we engaged agents with technology. So why did they accept or reject it? And we did something called the motivational user interface, which was trying to embed certain aspects of psychology into the design to, to encourage people really to use a lot of technologies. And it was kind of inspired by the fact that I, at the time, was working in our customer service area and got summoned to the customer service director's office. And we'd spent an enormous amount of money on a knowledge base and none of the agents were actually using it. So there was a kind of challenge to me around, well, how do we get agents to actually engage with this technology more? And the motivational user interface was born from there. And that's what I ended up writing my PhD on. So I inadvertently invented Facebook, I, I keep saying on that one, because uh, there was something that was very similar to social media embedded within it. So one reason we found that people tended to engage with technology was curiosity about their team. So what we did was a team page where they could share all sorts of stuff, you know, photos from their wedding or what they did at the weekend. And that actually, you know, that was their front page when they logged on. And, and that was a reason that they logged on. Obviously, we also wanted them to use it to help customers. And that was kind of the flip side of that. But we tried to, to embed those nudges, those behavioral nudges into those interfaces. So we trialed them in thinking it's three or four active contact centers. It worked, but never really ended up being a product, sadly. But that's my life. That's innovation, isn't it? Um, a lot of these are, are around sort of proving the concept. And I think with all of those, we prove the concept. Um, the next most difficult thing is to then get it to work, which certainly with homeworking, it's taken a virus to do it, to be perfectly honest, because, you know, we're like near 30 years on and contact centre industry has been up until re very recently quite reticent to, to kind of embrace things like homeworking. Obviously, there are things like security concerns and the skewing towards younger agents being an issue because um, younger agents typically don't necessarily have a room that they can separate themselves out into and often they're in shared housing. So, you know, there are some operational difficulties, but actually I think, you know, we've kind of, if you treat the pandemic as an experiment, there's quite a lot of things I think we can learn from that around enabling agents to work anywhere rather than in a centre, a contact centre. So yeah, I've had a, an interesting career that spanned research and consultancy. And at the moment I'm in BT's innovation team. So a lot of what we try and do is to, we innovate with and for our large enterprise customers. My remit is to work with our UK corporate customers and our public sector customers around challenges and issues that they have. So you, as you can imagine, contact centre is definitely one of those, those key challenges around how do we deliver fantastic customer experiences? How do we engage agents? How do we employ digital technologies that actually do improve the customer experience rather than simply cut costs? All of those are things I tend to work on. 
Thank you for that introduction, Nicola. It's one of those great introductions where you have combined some fun facts with true knowledge and your Vita, which I really like. I was about to jump in when you said it took a virus to make homework possible. That's the reality. We all work at home. I think I want to jump directly on one point that you said. And you said you spent a lot of money on a knowledge base, but nobody would use it. And you silently invented a Facebook to drive agents to use the knowledge, the knowledge base. What drives people to use technology? I mean, there's some horrible psychology behind this, but I always summarize it as you've got to look at the three U's. Is it useful? Frankly, most technologies are useful, but they're not necessarily useful in the eyes of the user. <laughs> so I think sometimes you have to try, don't ever ask the, the person that invented the technology, is it useful? Because they will tell you, it's like calling their baby ugly if it's not useful, but it is really around engaging with the users and saying, you, how is this going to change your job? Hopefully it makes their job easier. Now, I think with knowledge bases, part of the problem at the time on that particular example was that agents were often measured by average call handle time. And actually using the knowledge base tended to extend the average call handle time because they spent a lot of time finding stuff on the knowledge base. And it was a lot quicker to, to access, you know, basically stuff in their brains, which we hadn't updated necessarily, which often then caused maybe outdated information being fed to the customer. And again, that was a frustration for the customer service director because she was saying, well, the right information is on the knowledge base. They just haven't used it. So it was really around how do we embed the fact that actually there are, there's stuff in the knowledge base that can help them, but also try and make that search faster. We introduced different ways of searching, different shortcuts. We even actually used natural language in one of the experiments so that it would monitor the call and try and proactively pop up suggestions as to, to what might actually help from the knowledge base. So there were all sorts of things we tried to do around sort of increasing those perceptions of, is it useful to me? That's the first one. Is it usable is the second one. And to be honest, this is an easier one to answer because there's a whole science behind usability gone through various iterations. I think largely it's known as design thinking now. But this is really around how do I design technologies to be intuitive? I don't want to go on a three week training course to use this technology. I want to be able to pick it up and find stuff without necessarily being trained. And generally, the technologies that we use as consumers are much better at doing this than the ones that we tend to use within enterprises, which are often much more complex. So it was really around how do we start to make enterprise technologies a lot easier and more intuitive to use. But as I said, that's kind of the easy bit. If you can answer yes to both of those questions, is it useful and is it usable? You've probably got a good chance. However, it kind of stands and falls with adoption. And that's the third question really is who else is using it? And this is where evil psychology comes in or behavioral economics. Who else is using it just to get that right? Yeah. So it's not about so it's, am it's, I using it? Who else is using it? Who else is using it? Because the chances are, if I'm using it, my peers are using it. I can see my managers using it. I can see my colleagues using it. Particularly for things like collaboration tools, I always say a social network of one would be a terrible social network. So the value of a social network is not just that it is there, it's the other people that are using it and I am engaging with those people. And again, to a certain extent around the sort of little mini social network that we originally did for the motivational user interface, that would only be interesting if other people were engaging. And if other people were engaging that are like me and I know, I'm probably more likely to engage myself. But there are certainly things like nudges that you can do from the sort of behavioral economics side to increase adoption there. And that often it's around well, influencing the leaders and the team leaders, especially. So what we tried to do with the knowledge base example was to get the team leaders to promote the knowledge base. So if the agent you know, stuck their hand up and said, I don't know how to do this, what we tried to do was to train the team leaders to go to the knowledge base first so that they would show the agent that that was there on the knowledge base and available. And they didn't necessarily have to ask the team leader to do it. But 
you know, they had confidence in the knowledge base. The other thing we did, which was slightly more subtle, was to get the agents to input to the knowledge base. So input their own knowledge. You know, they found a solution to something. They submitted it. And in that way, it was quite interesting. We did an experiment doing that and also not doing that. And people tended to engage and trust the knowledge base more if their colleagues had input the knowledge rather than somebody they didn't know had. So there was that around that sort of nudge. And then, of course, some agents themselves. So, I mean, observing contact centres, I used to do a lot of ethnography within contact centres and just watch the, the dynamics of who, if the agent had a question, who would they ask? And it wasn't necessarily the supervisor. It was sometimes just an experienced agent. And they are, tend to be the key influencers. So again, targeting them to say, OK, put your knowledge in the knowledge base. So you're actually getting them to proactively work with it, but then also act as a promoter of the, of the knowledge base amongst the agents that, that typically we're interacting with them. So there's lots of things you can do in terms of increasing the adoption because being useful and being usable isn't always enough. So yeah, the three use test. Is it useful? Is it usable? And who else is using it? I like our conversation because you're doing the summary that I was about to do with the three use. So thank Good. you for that. Um, I learned something on how technology is adopted. Now, if we look back on the last 20 to 25 years, a lot of new technologies have been adopted. If you were to put this a bit on a timeline, what are the major milestones in the last 20, 25 years that shaped the contact center industry in your opinion? Well, I mean, I think even the evolution of the switch, if you look at the history of the contact center, the reason a contact center is a contact center is typically you would have had a physical switch that you would have then hung your agents off, not literally, obviously, but that was the rationale behind a center. Obviously, it was centralized. You could centralize and get economies of scale on training and knowledge and all sorts of things. So that's the reason it was a center. But it's interesting as things have evolved and things have gone increasingly from on-premise to cloud, even that sort of premise of I need people to be co-located isn't necessarily a viable model or, or even a reasonable model. And I think, again, the pandemic kind of proved that, that you can have agents wherever you want. Now, there are still significant things. I, I think contact centers are especially difficult because, and this happened quite a lot in the pandemic, customers can be very demanding. And certainly during the pandemic, some of the research that we did around customers and customer behaviors and how they changed during the pandemic was showing that when they did contact, a lot of it shifted to digital, but when they did contact, they were often frustrated, distressed, even and rude to agents. So there is an element to particularly contact center work where agents sometimes have a very rough ride. They get a lot of grief, I guess, from customers for problems that they themselves did not cause. And in that way, I mean, I think this is an interesting one because we actually did ask agents how they got on in the pandemic. And largely, I mean, work-wise, actually the lift and shift from office to home hadn't been hugely problematic. In fact, a lot of them liked that. The problem was the communities of coping weren't there. And what I mean by communities of coping is if you've had a bad call or you have a complex question, when you're in a contact center, it's really easy to spin your chair around and look for somebody for sympathy. And actually, we know that agents often actively monitor conversations around them as well. So if people know that other people are having a rough time, they'll actually proactively monitor that. That's gone when you have a remote team. Some of the stuff we did with the motivational user interface was to try and build those communities of coping back in. I, I call it the contact center dance. Uh, in a physical workspace, what you frequently see is the agent peering over their cubicle, maybe standing up, trying to see if the other agent's on a call, asking them, you know, mouthing, are you on a call? And if they say no, and then asking a question. How do you do that digitally? It can be replicated to a certain extent by collaboration tools because you get presence information. So you can see if people are engaged or not. And you can have that conversation. But again, it's a slightly different dynamic. And I think that's been one of the problems. And I think it's one of the things we need to work on around how do we build better communities 
difficulties of coping when probably as we go into the future, agents might not be co-located or at least not the entire team. There may be a, a bit of an ebb and flow because I think, you know, 70% of agents we surveyed said that they'd quite like to work at least some of the time remotely. Um, so not every day necessarily, but at least some of the time, which does imply that we're probably going to have teams that are split between the physical centre and other remote locations, which might be home, could be hubs as well. The fundamental technology that, that the contact centre, it was formed by has changed radically. And we then have built on top of that, obviously, things like collaboration tools. From a technology perspective, it's almost the perfect time for a pandemic because a lot of technologies that we were trying back in 1992 were <laughs> not there. That's a bit cynic and to say. <laughs> it it is, but, you know, on. in 1992, bear in mind, we set home advisors up at home. So we gave them two ISDN lines, which involved digging their garden up. Expensive. We don't need to do that anymore. We have 4G, 5G, Wi-Fi broadband, you know, so that's that's the cost has gone down there. Collaboration tools. We actually did give them video back in 1992. I have to say the video unit was the size of a small refrigerator and it was terrible quality. And, and actually it failed the three use test. It was awful. And actually very few people did use it, but we did put video in. Now, obviously, video has become you know fairly ubiquitous and, and has again become a bit of a lifesaver during the pandemic. And then obviously cloud technologies, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that the physical on-premise switch has now largely, not universally, but largely migrated up to the cloud, which means actually uh, you have a lot more flexibility in terms of where you potentially put your agents. So it's become a lot more cost effective and from a technology perspective works, whereas it probably wouldn't even 10 years ago, I think we would have struggled. I'd quickly like to touch upon the fact on the communities of coping. I think this is an issue which is not only relevant in contact centers, but also at all companies. And we at SolveMate, we we're 100% remote company since a year. Also, it changed our way of working from an office to a remote location. And we are very well aligned with cloud and all these things. But still, there is some el some human element to know who is there, when can I talk. And in a group, that's also my experience. It's easier to deal with downsides or getting a bummer at work because everyone gets that. And especially customer service agencies to be very resilient how they work. We talked about a lot of innovation that kind of shaped probably to the good of being more flexible, being more cost effective. But does something come to your mind where an innovation failed? That means something was innovated and then kind of it was meant to be used, adopted widely, but it didn't. I think I've already given a few examples because frankly, innovation fails probably more than it succeeds. The risk on a lot of innovation is you do it too early. And I think that was the case on the AI. It was too early. On the homeworking piece, it was a bit too early. On the motivational user interface, actually, we have seen elements of that being incorporated into, into contact center systems. So it, that one didn't entirely fail. It was, I guess, more of an academic experiment that we, we did a proof of concept. We don't take it personally, frankly, because I always say failure isn't a problem as long as you learn from it. In innovation, often you have a slightly different culture. If you're in a sort of operational area, failure is quite often punished. It shouldn't be, by the way, because I think everyone can learn from failure. But the sort of risk perception in innovation is slightly lower because we know that it's probably going to fail. But as long as we learn from it, I love experimentation. I think it's the way to go. And I think particularly as we're going into this more hybrid way of working, there are going to be some horrible hybrids out there. It's going to be messy. But I think we should learn from those messes 
honest as to what's worked well and what hasn't worked well. And let's discard the stuff that didn't work well and try and embrace the stuff that did and grow on that. So, yeah, I mean, I think there would be too many examples of innovation that's failed that I could give. But yeah, often it's it's either a little bit too early or the technology's not quite mature enough. But with all of it, we kind of proved it could work. It's only just become mainstream because we're on the second wind of AI. <laughs> Some of those problems have been solved. Not all of them. Mm, not um, all of them. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And and homeworking, obviously. Yeah. We, we, we've kind of proved that we don't need to be in the four walls of an office to work very effectively. Before we have a look into the future of contact centers, I'd quickly like to quote one of the blog articles that you read, which was called From Contact Center to Strategic Relationship Hub. And the heading there was, as our smartphones increasingly become our window of the world and we are in a land of chatting and tapping, you would be forgiven thinking that the talk aspects of the contact center is soon to be consigned to the past. What do you mean by that? So, okay, one of BT's brand taglines was it's good to talk. And I think that's still relevant. So I think one of the things that we've been looking at is the effect of digitization and automation on the contact center. Now, there is a school of thought that it makes the contact center completely irrelevant and redundant. The evidence is against that thought, though. In fact, what we've been finding largely, and this has been, again been particularly evident by uh, some of the research that we've done during the pandemic, is that the contact center is increasingly important in a world of increased digitization and automation. What we typically find is the more that you automate, obviously you can automate out a lot of the very routine stuff. Um, you can certainly give a lot of the resources to customers to use. And again, if, if it passes the three use test, again, if it's useful, usefully used, the customers will welcome that. However, and we've done a lot of research, particularly around why people contact contact centers and what channels they use. And I think it's quite interesting because we in you know, customer experience professionals tend to get really obsessed with channels. You know, gosh, why are they using the phone? Can we move them to chat? Can we turn the email channel off? Well, actually, when we get into the mind of a customer around channels, they don't think about channels. They have a goal. And then typically underlying that goal is an intention state. And actually, it's the intention state that tends to drive them to certain channels. That We found three states, positive, negative and neutral. Positively motivated customers, we call them visionaries, typically are doing something that they want to do. They have a positive goal. So maybe they're getting married. Maybe they're going on a holiday, all things that are slightly risky during a pandemic. So they will invest time, energy and effort in trying to plan that. They can be a bit paranoid. And that's where maybe human advice comes in. So they might need to just be reassured that they're absolutely doing the right thing. Those customers use a lot of channels and as long as you don't confuse them, they are brilliant customers to have. However, they can turn into it from a positive to a negative customer. We call these customers in crisis or they could start in crisis. They start negative and we've probably all been there. We've got angry, we've got frustrated, particularly if we have, have an accident or something like that. But now customer in crisis behaves in a very different way because their intention state is negative. Now at an extreme of crisis, so when we're actually experiencing the emotion, there are some very Very interesting things that happen to our brains. So lots of hormones tend to swarm in. And actually, from a design perspective, the biggest thing to think about is the fact your short-term memory capacity halves when you are actually in crisis. So if you're designing an IVR, which I used to do um, for my sins, you tend to design to the short-term memory capacity of the brain, which normally when you're calm is between seven and nine bits. Press one for this, that's two bits. Press two for that, that's four bits. 
There's three for that. That's six. I'm pretty much up to capacity. Well, that's when I'm calm, of course. So if I get angry, frustrated, scared, my short-term memory capacity at the time of emotion will halve. So my short-term memory capacity goes, press one for this, press two for, I can't remember what one was for. Instantly, you start to see that designing really complex interfaces for customers in crisis don't work. They also tend to want to talk to somebody. So that's why the phone, and it's good to talk, still comes really, really importantly on those customers in crisis because they might try digital first. But if they get confused, they're going to lift the phone up and they want to talk to a human being that can help them. At an extreme, I keep saying you would never email the fire brigade to tell them that your house is burning down. So that's the kind of situation that we're looking at. So that's why contact centers really do work there. But the negative part of that is agents do tend to get all of the really complex negative stuff rather than the lovely positive stuff. So uh, particularly on the phone channel, that neutral point we call utilitarians. So these are doing effectively routine transactional stuff. And I keep saying, you don't need wow. You do not need an amazing customer experience. You just need it to be quick and easy. And that's where if you can pass the three use test, that's where digital technologies really do come in. Because if you can solve that problem fast, friction free and easily for the customer, they will appreciate that. But effectively, what we've tried to do is a different view on customer journeys. So rather than the traditional segmentation view, what we've been trying to do is to say, can we segment on goal and intention state and then drop down strategies, particularly around where do we use the phone? agents? Where can we introduce chat? How do we signpost customers to the channel that is most likely to get them to their goal? How do we collect information up front to try and, you know, predict and personalize that experience. All of that comes in when we start to discuss that that sort of slightly different model of customer journeys. I like that intention state and goal thing. So to quickly summarize, you have positive states. They are great. They use a variety of channels. They just want to solve. They are positive. They want to do something. There is a neutral state where it's about fast handling time, where automation really kicks in. And then there is this negative state where, I mean, I've seen it myself. If you want to rebook a hotel and you don't have time and it's like a crisis situation, you just want to call because you can rest assured that things will happen and there is no delay and you can can get it solved as soon as possible. And I'm quite often quoting the value irritant metrics. Is it valuable? to the client or is it annoying and is it valuable to the company or is it annoying to the company and the top right corner is the great corner because it's valuable to the client and valuable to the company and valuable in a positive or negative way because you can sell something or you can help someone coming from a crisis in the positive state of mind and all the rest shall be avoided why are people in crisis because something failed and most likely it's the company processes or the company product so you should always avoid negative feelings and negative experiences means just make your product better. But we live in the real world, things crash and that's normal. So I like that view of, is it valuable to the client? And even if I'm crisis mode, it's valuable to me to talk to someone. So human agents will not go away. I'm 100% aligned with that. I think that job will change, as you said, because the more routine neutral stuff will go away, meaning they need to be more consultative, more problem solvers, more complicated cases. There will be less agents in the future, like there have been less factory workers as the steam engine was invented 100 years ago. That's just like a change that's probably going to happen in the next years. I said earlier, we want to go into a bit of the future. So where do you see the current trends and innovation and custom experience that will shape the next five years? 
There are several things. Obviously, the increased amount of automation on the customer side. So actually being able to achieve more through automation, which, as you just said, does have a huge impact effect on your agent skill base because their job becomes even more complex than it was before and obviously more emotive potentially as well. And they need to be supported as well. So as I said, communities are coping. They're going to need a lot of those. They are going to certainly need agent assist type technologies because of the the complexity. We've also sort of been talking about this concept of networked expertise because it might might need more than one agent as well to solve the problem. So how do you network, use the agent as the customer interface to other experts within a business or actually maybe not within the business to other experts? They can network together to solve exceptionally complex customer problems. And again, that's a lot to do with bringing in collaboration tools into the process. So there's, there's that aspect of changing the sort of upfront stuff. And then I think one of the more interesting ones for the future is, is more around proactivity. So to your point, often crisis situations are sometimes predictable. <laughs> I mean, the tsunami calls that you tend to get in, particularly if you're a telecoms or a u- utility, no one rings a telecoms company to say they're really happy. It's generally there's an outage somewhere. And similarly, if you've not got any water or electricity. So actually being able to detect within networks, whether it's a water network or a telecoms network, where there are, are customer facing problems and issues and actually be proactive to tell the customer rather than reactive. So that's pushing demand out of the contact center rather than having to react to that demand. I think there's a lot of really interesting work going on there, particularly, I mean, this basic stuff, not even that sophisticated around appointment handling, for example. So do you remember you have an appointment? Oh, I don't. Okay, can I change it? You can use that. You can put automation and AI up front there without involving a human agent, unless it becomes complex, at which point you definitely need to start to skills-based route it and hopefully pass the conversation across to an agent to pick that up. I think it's easier to do that when you're being proactive because you've started the conversation. And I think my experience, particularly things like chatbots, chatbots can be brilliant if they're designed well and they're in the right place in the customer journey. But ask me anything type chatbots are very difficult to do. But if you start the question, you've instantly bounded that conversation. And I always say the sweet spot with with bots is narrow and deep. So if you can start that conversation, narrow it down. So it's about an appointment that you should know that you have, but you don't know and you want to change it or your problem's already been solved. That part of automation, I think, is starting to work very well. So I call it the me economy because a lot of this is about customer data and customers' willingness to share their data because machine learning and AI does not work by magic. So it's about data. And a lot of that is customer data. So particularly under GDPR, we've got to figure out how much we want from customers and ask their permission. The only reason they're going to give permission is because of this me economy. I think there's some in it for me. So I'm trading my data. Generally, that's for personalization initially. So, you know, the Netflix of the world, the Amazons of the world have been doing this for many, many years, and we're pretty comfortable with it as long as it's appropriate. Then you do get the proactive stuff, which is, is it the right message? So not too many messages, because if I keep telling you there's an outage on the network every minute of the day, because there probably is somewhere that's just going to get annoying. Customers are going to go, I'm going to turn it off. So it's got to be an appropriate message on the appropriate channel and at the appropriate time. So that in itself is a challenge. But again, if that is working for me as a customer, brilliant, I'm, I'm going to share you my data with you. Then we get into the slightly more creepy stuff. So can you start to be predictive? So can you predict customer behavior before they do it? The problem with that is it can get creepy. And we have seen instances, particularly within retail, I think is, is the one where, you know, the supermarkets know everything about your shopping behaviors. And if it starts to become that you, they know more about you than you do. I know quite a few people that have stopped using their supermarket loyalty cards 
cards because they got a bit creeped out about it. But I think as we get more smart stuff out there, you know, not just in networks, but in buildings, in streets, in cars, in the internet of things, all of that lovely stuff, potentially we can do a lot more with that data to personalize the experience and make that experience maybe a little bit more proactive and predictive. But again, it's got to pass the three use test. Does the customer actually want it? Is it usable? And is it to my advantage? So I think there's a lot of meat there around maybe changing the relationship of the contact center from less reactive, more proactive. I like the way of appointment handling. I would even think appointment handling one step further. I would ask for an appointment to talk with a customer service representative or so. I hate waiting in lines and I love callback services. But what if I could say, I want to get a callback at 3 p.m. today? That would be awesome. And that might be the future of, you know, organizing all of these hundreds of thousands of callbacks would be something that I would personally like to see in customer service because that's just very efficient. And then you call it me economy, trading data for personalization. Personalization is key. So that's great. That's a lot of trends. Today in the show, we talked about innovation, customer experience, a lot of very interesting anecdotes on psychology, on behavioral science, how we use, how we interact with technology. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Nicola. Thank you I'm very thankful much. thankful for having Thank you in the show. Awesome to be invited. Thanks. Danke fürs Zuhören beim Digital Kompakt Podcast. Du merkst, hier ziehst du massig Wissen für dich und dein Unternehmen heraus. Wenn du mit uns noch erfolgreicher werden möchtest, abonniere uns auf den gängigen Podcast-Plattformen. Und hey, je größer wir werden, desto mehr Menschen können wir helfen. Also erzähl doch auch deinen Kolleginnen und Kollegen von uns. Bis zum nächsten Mal.